Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile apps. We continue to roll through Romans, St. Paul's greatest letter in all likelihood. And we left off in chapter 9. So if you want to open up your Bible or your Bible app, you can look at Romans 9, verses 30 through 33. We're just going to kind of finish off these few verses and we're going to move on to chapter 10. But this is what Paul says here. What then shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have achieved it? That is, righteousness that comes from faith. But that Israel, who pursued the law of righteousness, did not attain to that law. Why not? Because they did it not by faith, but as if it could be done by works. They stumbled over the stone that causes stumbling. As it is written, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion that will make people stumble and a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. So what, what's going on here? I just want to set the, these few verses in the context of where we've been and where we're going. As Scott Hahn says in his commentary on Romans, essentially what's happened in chapter 9 so far is that St. Paul has covered the election of Israel by God. In other words, God singled out Israel as his chosen people, his vehicle by which he would reveal his salvation to the world. And right now, this present section that we're in, and this is part of a, a bigger argument, Romans 9, 10, and 11, the section that we're in right now has to do with why is it that the majority of Jews have rejected Jesus as the Messiah in Paul's time, in Paul's time. Now, having said that, don't forget, thousands have accepted him. Many thousands. We're going to see this uh, in a little bit. Even the Bible tells us this. So not everybody, but we have to admit that the majority of Jews did not accept Jesus as their Jewish Messiah. Some have back then, thousands, but even many thousands today, which is not widely reported, but the vast majority have not. Now what he's going to say in the third part of the argument, this is going to be in chapter 11, Nothing to do with bankruptcy here or spiritual bankruptcy. He's going to say, chapter 11, get it? All right. How, how is Israel going to be restored by God? And, and one of the last things he'll say is, all Israel will be saved. How exactly is that going to happen? But right now, what he's talking about here is this uh, sort of middle part, uh, questioning why it is that the vast majority of his Jewish brothers and sisters have not accepted Jesus. And he uses this metaphor of a race, of a race, running the race. And this is something that Paul was very well known for, using athletic metaphors. In some of his other letters, he talks about boxing. I don't box like a shadow boxer is one beating the air. You know, I got to fight against my opponent, the devil. Let's beat that guy up for a change. All right, how about this? He talks about running. He talks about running the race. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. He was probably inspired by the Olympic Games of his time, also the Ismian Games in Corinth. And we know that St. Paul wrote to Corinth, spent a lot of time in Corinth, obviously. And in Corinth, they had the Ismian Games, which was the second in, in importance only to the Olympics in the ancient world. All the same events, track and field, boxing, wrestling. And, and St. Paul was a sports fan, it seems. He uses this all the time. I like Paul more and more. So why is it that Israel, who had this advantage, this great advantage in the race of faith, if you will, why many of them never got to the finish line. 
It's a little bit like Usain Bolt. And you guys will remember him, of course, the great Jamaican sprinter, probably the greatest sprinter of all time. He was favored to win in pretty much every 100-meter dash that he ever entered, <laughs> often the 200 as well. He's got all the advantages. He's got length. He's got levers. He's got incredible speed. He's got great training, the tradition of Jamaican sprinting. What if Usain Bolt were to stumble and fall about 50 meters in in the 100-meter dash and never does win a gold medal in an Olympics that he's favored to do so? That would be the great shock. It, or, or, or maybe he just gets surpassed by, by a lesser sprinter. And it's a little bit like what St. Paul is talking about here in that Israel has been given all of the advantages here. Training, scriptures, all of, of salvation history, all so many helps from God. And, and ought to have, all, all things being equal, understood that Jesus, in fact, fit the profile of the Messiah. And why is it that the Gentiles who don't have any of this, many not all the Gentiles accepted Jesus, let's face it, many Gentiles rejected him as well, but why is it that Gentiles who don't have this training, who don't have this background, who don't have the moral law, any of the stuff that Paul's been mentioning in Romans, how is it that they're able to, to win in the spiritual life? They're able to get the prize, which is Christ Jesus. How is that the case? Well, this is exactly what St. Paul is talking about right in this little section here. So in verse 30, in chapter 9, verse 30, he says this, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, righteousness through faith. It's a little bit like being a couch potato and being able to win an Olympic gold medal. Hey, wait, I haven't pursued it. I haven't trained, but yet, here it is. I've got it around around my neck. And this is kind of a rhetorical question by, by Paul. What shall we say? How, how can we say the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness now have it? Well, the answer is yes, they have. They do, they do really, really have it through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is really underscoring the fact that this is a gift, this gift of faith, because a lot of the Gentiles were not following the commandments. They, they weren't familiar with the scriptures of Israel. Yet, because they have trusted in Jesus Christ, they have been able to achieve the prize. They've received this, this incredible reward, even though they didn't even know they were running a race. I, I didn't know I was on, on, in a spiritual battle here. I didn't know I was in a race against time, against the devil against the world, against the flesh. But yet, here I am, and not only did I not know I was running, I've actually won the race because I've got Christ. So then these next couple of verses here, St. Paul really asks the question, why is it that Israel didn't didn't uh, fulfill this? He says, Israel, who pursued the righteousness, which is based on law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why? And he answers his own question. He says, because they did not pursue it through faith, but as if it were based on works. And by that he means good deeds. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And he who believes in him will not be put to shame. So, 
this is a totally different ballgame. Paul's asking the question, why is it that so many of his fellow Jews, who unlike these pagans, these pagan Gentiles, they do care about the law. They do care about God. They, they are passionate about pursuing him. And, and they're so careful about observing every minute detail, not only of the written law, but also of, of the oral law, the traditions that were passed on, sacred tradition, I guess you could say. And yet, they have not embraced Jesus as Messiah. What a great tragedy. And this is the, the interesting thing that Paul says here. He says that one of the reasons why this hasn't happened is because Israel has not pursued it through faith, but as if it were based on works, on good deeds. And before you kind of look down your nose at these guys and gals, I understand that many Catholics are guilty of the exact same thing. There's so many Catholics. If you were to poll all Catholics today in North America, the sad, probably all around the world too, the sad reality is that a lot of Catholics will tell you, if you were to ask them, how do you get to heaven? They would say, by doing good deeds or by trying to look at it as an accounting problem. I've got my sins on one hand on one ledger. And on the other side of the ledger, I've got my good deeds. And I'm just hoping and praying that the good deeds outweigh the bad. That's not what the scriptures teach. <laughs> but yet so many Catholics think that way. But it is not the way. It is not the way. Faith is absolutely required. Now, do our works play a part in it? Do our deeds play a part in it? Absolutely. Faith works. And in so many ways, what we do is the evidence of the faith that we have. And they can merit us a lot is in this life and in the next. And it can really affect the experience of eternity that we have. But nobody can give us that initial grace, that initial gift of justification. And that is a gift of God. And so, yes, it does become a partnership. After that point, we've got to stay, stay connected with God, ratify our faith. But in the beginning, it is absolutely a gift. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. All right, let, let's continue on as we look through this. This image of the, the stumbling stone, tripping over a stone during a race, falling flat on your face, this is, this is really interesting. This is really interesting. He, he gets this from a couple of passages in Scripture that he kind of mashes together, as St. Paul is very fond of doing when he, when he quotes the Old Testament. He says this in um, chapter 9. He says they have stumbled, this is in verse 32, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, where does it say this? Where, where in Scripture is it talking about this? Well, he's looking at a couple of verses in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 28, 16, and Isaiah 8, 14. He kind of smashes them together, if you will, to talk about how there's this stone, this trip hazard that is there, um, that is causing a lot of people not, not to, to get to the end of their faith. Now, in the original context of these verses in Isaiah, especially the one in Isaiah chapter 28, uh, verse 16, what's going on here is that Judah, now there's the southern kingdom of Judah, and as Han explains in his commentary, the rulers of Judah, 
basically tried to make a strategic alliance with the Egyptians. And, and they did this to try to fight against their enemies. They thought it might make them stronger. It was a disaster and it was a miscalculation because the Assyrians, who they were really terrified of, God basically was trying to say, you guys need to trust in me. I'll handle the Assyrians, but don't make an alliance with the Egyptians. You need to have faith in my power, just as in so many other times in salvation history. Like when when I got you guys out of G- Egypt, now you're trying to make a deal with the Egyptians. Wait, you, they were so much more powerful than you, yet I fought for you. And God basically says, look, I got you out of there. I won. You, ne- you need to have that same trust in me right now. And we need to have that same trust in God in, in the present day as well. So because of this alliance that they made, they, they essentially trusted in human princes instead of God. It was a disaster. It was an absolute uh, nightmare for Israel to do this. And so what Paul is saying is a similar thing is happening in his own time. What, what is the stone that everybody's tripping over right now? It is none other than the cornerstone and that is Jesus Christ. This was also prophesied by Paul's companion during his missionary journeys in uh, in Luke's gospel. Uh, St. Luke, who accompanied Paul on so many occasions, he, he's the one who relates to us of what happens in the temple when Jesus is presented. He's in, uh, our Lord, his parents there, encountered by the aged Simeon. And what was it that Simeon said to Mary? Behold, this child is set. For the fall and rising of many in Israel, this he's basically going to be a stumbling stone that people are going to trip on. How you react to Jesus is going to determine, determine in so many ways your destiny in this life and in the next. And so just as in the Old Testament, when people didn't trust in the Lord and they got tripped up, the same thing is happening in the New Testament period. History does predict itself. As Mark Twain said, history really does rhyme. It doesn't always repeat itself exactly, but it sure does rhyme. And, and the way that people respond to the covenants that God sets up for them, very, very similar in the old covenant and in the new. People reject them just as they did back then. Part of it is the crucifixion. A lot of people couldn't understand how it was that God would allow the Messiah to be crucified, to suffer such an ignominious and scandalous death. They thought, maybe this guy just doesn't fit the bill. This Jesus, he can't be the Messiah, so I better trust in my own self. I better trust in just me keeping the law. That is a bad idea, and it's a bad deal. All right, you're, you're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Let's carry on here. Let's go to chapter 10. Let's open up a new chapter in Romans. All right, let's look at the first uh, four verses here. This is a uh, pretty intense. St. Paul writes, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law, that everyone who has faith may be justified. Okay, let's stop there just for, just for one second. What Paul is doing here is he's, he's sort of wearing his heart on his sleeve. Um, he's really kind of showing, and, and back to this whole question again of, uh, 
whether pre, some are predestined to damnation, it's not the case. Paul, Paul is eagerly praying that people will change their minds. God predestines no one to damnation. They, they choose to go to hell by rejecting him, his truth, his plan, and they just kind of maintain that, that position of distrust. But this is why he says in verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God on their behalf. And he's talking about his fellow Israelites who have not accepted Jesus yet. It's for their salvation. That's what I'm praying for. He says, I testify with regard to them that they have zeal for God, but it is not discerning. It's not discerning. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. Don't forget that Paul himself knows exactly what it's like to be in their position because that's the way he lived. He too rejected Jesus as Messiah. He thought it was ridiculousness that people believed in him. And he tried everything in his power to lock up uh, his fellow Jews who believed in Jesus as Messiah, to have them executed. He wanted to destroy the church until Jesus got a hold of him personally. In, in a revelation that Paul just couldn't deny and he couldn't ignore, it was impossible. He kind of took away his freedom and revealed who he really was. Faith was replaced by real experience for Paul. And yeah, he still had to have faith, but that initial experience with Christ, phew, he couldn't deny it anymore, the road to Damascus. So he, he knows what it's like to be in that position because he himself was like that too. So he, he really kind of unburdens his heart uh, to the readers of, uh, of his letter in Rome, how much he pines for the salvation of his fellow Israelites. And as he's going to say uh, later on in uh, chapter 11, verse 14, he just, he just prays that somehow he, he wants to make his fellow Jews jealous. Like, hey, we've got the Messiah and you don't. You know, Let's make them jealous in order that, that some of them might want to be saved. You know, A holy envy. That's what he wants to stir up in them. And so I've got to ask you this question. Do you and I have that same desire for the people around us? Do we have that passion that our loved ones get to know Jesus? And even maybe some of our, our fellow Catholics who may not be living out their faith anymore, that they really aren't living in a way that shows that they know Messiah Jesus and that they trust in him. And, and, and they're just kind of going through the motions. Do we have that same passion for them and for pagan unbelievers as well? That's a really good question for us to ask ourselves as we read through and see the heart of St. Paul right here. So they have a zeal. Paul does say this. They have a great, great zeal for the law, for the Torah, for divine revelation. And it's a good thing to have zeal, but that zeal needs to be rightly directed. Now, the, the good thing is they, 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 they are in accord with the revealed law of God. They love the old covenant. They love the Ten Commandments. So they are, they're living their life in accord with reality. And, and from a human perspective, of course, things are going to work out well because they're living life the way God intended. However, however, when it comes to the goal of all of it, what all of the scriptures are pointing toward, and it's not a thing, it's a person, Jesus Christ. They're not there yet. So how do they get there? We're going to deal with that in the next episode of Romans. You're listening to The Faith Explained. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Don't go away just yet, because we've got an excellent question for you right now in our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Okay, so we open up the mailbag today. I want to remind you that you can email me your question. You can reach me at this email address, faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H, faith at relevantradio.com. Dot com, and you can find me on the X app at 
Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. You can follow me there and try to get your question to me that way. And today's question comes to me from Philip in Carlsbad, California, who's listening to The Faith Explained on Apple Podcasts. And uh, just a quick word to those of you who are listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or on another podcast service. If you could please give our show a rating and a review that really does help people to find our programs, whether it's the Faith Explained show, whether it's the Kale Clark show, or any of the other programming that we have on Relevant Radio, if you listen on those uh, platforms, uh, please uh, do give a rating and a review and share with a friend. I really appreciate that. A lot of you guys are listening, of course, on the new and improved Relevant Radio app, so check that out as well in your favorite app store. So here's the question from Philip. Hi, Kale. In Mark chapter 12, is Jesus denying that he is a descendant of David according to the flesh as the Messiah? Okay, that, that, I'm really glad you asked that question, Philip, because that, that is um, a huge misunderstanding that a lot of people have about Jesus. In fact, a lot of Bible scholars think exactly that, that Jesus is denying that he's a descendant of David in Mark chapter 12. That is not true. That is absolutely not true. According to his human nature, he is a descendant of David. Now, this is a tricky passage, the one you're referring to, and this is when Jesus is teaching in the temple, very close to the time of the Passion. And this is in all four of the Gospels, by the way. Jesus has posed a question about the Messiah. Now, I want to read uh, Mark's uh, version here. This is in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. It says, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So you can see why people think this, right? Because Jesus himself seems to imply that he is not the son of David. Uh, but that's not what he's saying here at all. That is absolutely not what he's saying here at all. All right, so what is he saying? Well, uh, Dr. Brant Petre in his, in his book, The Case for Jesus, actually lays out a great case, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, that Jesus is not saying that he's uh, not a descendant of David. So what is he actually talking about here? Well, Jesus, when he's, when he's teaching the large crowd and it says they're listening to him with delight, he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. This is where Jesus says, well, how can the scribe say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says this, and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Don't forget. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, which is definitely a messianic psalm. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your so, okay, why is he quoting this? Why is he saying this? Well, the, the title Son of David is actually not from the Bible in terms of a, a title for the Messiah as the Son of David. That actually comes from Jewish tradition. So what would, as Bram Petre explained, what Jesus is saying here is that really, if you're, if you're biblical, <laughs> and Jesus is the living word of God, so he's very biblical, Jesus is saying that the proper biblical title for the Messiah is the Lord, the Lord of David. 
Now, so not son of David, but Lord of David. So it's you might say this is a really technical point, but that's why he refers to Psalm 110, in which David, who's writing inspired by the Holy Spirit, he refused to refers refers to the future messianic king as his Lord, the Lord. That's who it is. So the Lord God said to my Lord, that's David's Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. But actually, here, here's the, the amazing thing about this passage as well. This is, this is actually, people don't realize this, this is a great passage that shows the divinity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. Now, this isn't necessarily one of the go-to passages for that, but as Petre explains, when you, when you read this psalm, when you go back to Psalm 110, you got to read some other verses in there because it's pretty interesting. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The scepter of your power, the Lord will stretch forth from Zion. Yours is princely power in the day of your birth in holy splendor. Now listen to this. From the womb of the dawn, like the dew, I have begotten you. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. He won't change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is interesting. As Petre says, this is Jesus' own Christology. This is what the Christ thinks about the Christ. (laughs) This is what the Messiah thinks about who the Messiah really is. Not only is he greater than David, since David calls him his Lord, he's a heavenly king. He's a heavenly king who is co-equal with God. We, we know that Jesus is, is the only begotten son. Well, that's what it says. From the womb of the dawn, like the dew, I have begotten you. Wow. So this is unbelievable. And uh, there's another biblical scholar, Joel Marcus, who says, A seated position at the right hand of a deity implies co-regency with him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That means that you're, you're sitting on the same heavenly throne as Almighty God. This is unbelievable. So it's a quality here. The Messiah is equal to God when it comes to divinity. Wow. So, so this is showing that the Messiah is divine and the Messiah is preexistent and that he's an eternal priest as well. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So all of this is in the background here in, in this passage. And Jesus is basically saying, this is what I think of myself. I'm going to explain to you who I really, really am. And that's why the crowd is just eating it up. They're just loving this, all these scriptural illusions. Because Jesus is bringing out the real meaning of scripture. He's got the actual right interpretation because he is God. God made flesh. And he's the Messiah. And he's an eternal priest. And this is very very similar to the point that's made in Daniel chapter 7. That Jesus is this heavenly figure who receives this kingdom from the Father, the Ancient of Days, and that kingdom is exercised on earth. Wow. Wow. This is great stuff. So I'm so glad you asked that question because it led to maybe a can of worms that you didn't think you're going to have to open up. But wow, so much richness there that we see Jesus bringing forth from the scriptures. Well, if you've got a question and you're listening right now, you can send it in to me. The address is faith via email, faith at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the x.com app at Kale Clark. Thanks for joining me today on The Faith Explained. We'll be back later on today for The Kale Clark Show, live at 5 p.m. Central, only here on Relevant Radio.
relevant radio app. God bless you. Peace.